All right. So here's the thing. Your boy is pretty smart, I tend to think. Hopefully. Maybe sometimes. But at the same time, uh, runs hot and cold, gets fixated on things, and just, you know, can't get them out of my system. Um, which is to say that I have been thinking about one game a whole lot, and it is not a Supers game. I know. It's Supers June, and here I am thinking about a game that isn't a Supers game. So, I'm going to break the the cycle. I'm going to talk about one game that isn't a Supers game. Or rather, two games, because it's actually two games. I'm going to talk about two games, Blade of the Iron Throne and Song of Swords. And they're very similar, because they're both based off of the Riddle of Steel. And I have been thinking about... These games a whole lot recently. I I jokingly mentioned Blade of the Iron Throne just before we played our third session of Phase Rip, and now I'm thinking about it. And I was hooked on it at one point, and I'm I'm thinking about it again. So I am going to talk about Blade of the Iron Throne, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about. Riddle of Steel, and Song of Swords. So, if you want to hear a lot of rambling about a one particular sword and sorcery RPG, stay tuned, because there's going to be a lot of rambling about Blade of the Iron Throne. So what is Blade of the Iron Throne? Well, at its core... All three of these games are dice pool games. They are, so Riddle of Steel and Song of Swords are based on D10s. Blade of the Iron Throne is based on D12s. But basically, you roll a handful of dice. You try to hit a certain target number, generally a, a six or a seven. And you count up how many successes you have out of the handful of dice you rolled. And that gives you a um, measure of your success or failure at X thing. That's not by itself particularly innovative. What is innovative or interesting about the system is the combat. Riddle of Steel is apparently the only role-playing game that is endorsed by HEMA, which I don't remember what HEMA stands for, but I'm pretty sure... The EMA is European Martial Arts. Is, is historical European Martial Arts? Probably. Um, meaning that Riddle of Steel and these two games that are based on it are designed to play combat out in as close to a realistic form as possible. So what that means is that instead of your standard eye attack, I roll a d20, and then I describe how the attack went based on whether or not I hit and how much damage I do. You make a specific attack. So you say, I attack X zone with a slash, and um, they make a specific defense. You roll your pool of dice. 
based on how many successes you got and then your character's strength and the damage rating of the weapon and the opponent's um, toughness or damage soak rating. Um, you have a certain spot on a chart that tells you what damage happened to the thing. There's no hit points in this system. It's just specific wounds and you have to keep track of each wound. Um, luckily, Generally, there aren't a whole lot of wounds because once you take one of them, as happens in real life, the character who just got stabbed or slashed probably completely doubles up in pain and is pretty much unresponsive and relatively easy to finish off. So, where do we go from there? Well... Riddle of Steel is set in this, um, I think it's called Wayearth, this fictional kind of late medieval, early Renaissance version of Europe and the steppes and North Africa and all of that sort of stuff, the Mediterranean, basically. Blade of the Iron Throne is, by contrast, explicitly sword and sorcery. It is designed just for playing sword and sorcery with this combat system and this this skill resolution system and this combat system and then song of swords is it has a um kind of high fantasy setting although the magic book is not out for song of swords which makes it kind of less high fantasy than it would be with the magic book um so let's I'm going to pause now and transition into talking specifically about Blade of the Iron Throne, how things work, what the game is like based on the testing that I've done with it. And then I'm going to, at the end, bring back in Riddle of Steel and Song of Swords. So stay tuned. So for Blade of the Iron Throne, what is it about? What do you need? Well, here's what the book does. It starts off talking about the dice types used, the major checks, and the attributes. Um, there are six attributes. They are not the standard attributes. Um, they're a little bit different. So there's brawn, which fits fairly closely to strength, although it also has to do with your health. But then we have daring and cunning. Daring and cunning obviously are not the same as dexterity and constitution. Both of them are sort of similar to the way dexterity is used, although cunning in particular is kind of its own thing. Then we have tenacity, heart, and sagacity. Basically, these are the attributes that your character is built out of, and they govern doing things related to these specific attributes. Um, what you also have are passion attributes, and passion attributes are your character's goals, their wants and needs, and what they like and what they don't like, or rather, it's really more than what they like and what they don't like. It's what they feel very, very strongly about, and you get to use passion attributes to add to your dice pole in places where 
the passion is relevant, you also use passion attributes to um, upgrade your character because as you fulfill your passions, you spend the ratings of your passion attributes into um, character stuff. And then we have some combined attributes which are based on the basic attributes. So we have reflex, aim, knockdown, knockout, and move. Those are not quite self-explanatory, but they it, you get how they work once you've played the system a little bit. Reflex is basically your raw ability with melee weapons. Aim is your raw ability with ranged weapons. Knockdown is um, how hard you are to knock over. Knockout is how hard you are to knock unconscious. And move is how quickly you can move just walking around, running, sprinting, all of that sort of stuff. And then some characters have a sorcery rating if they are a filthy sorcerer. So, how do you make a character? Well, what you do is you get basically six. There's this um, chart, and it basically has six columns. Each column has six options so you have to choose a b c d a b c d e f for all of them and what i mean is you can choose one column in the a row one column in the b row one column in the c row so d is your standard human average rating which means that your character is going to be really good at one or two things, above average at one thing, below average at one thing, and bad at something. And what these columns are are sorcery, culture, attributes, skills, proficiencies, and assets. The way this works, sorcery represents your affinity, your natural affinity for sorcery, um, for casting spells and all of that sort of stuff. Culture represents what type of culture you're from, and there is a sort of culture loop that um, is implied in here that actually comes from Zoth. The Zoth Player's Guide has this culture loop more explicitly stated, but the idea is that cultures start as savages, they become hillmen, nomads, they become civilized, they, if they reach the heights of culture, they become enlightened, then they gradually fall into decadence, and then finally into complete degeneracy, and out of that degeneracy returns the savage. So you get to choose one of those for your culture, you get to choose attributes, obviously, you pick A, you have more attribute points than if you pick C. Skills, it's fairly straightforward. It's your skill points. Proficiencies, proficiencies are your proficiency points with weapons. So it's a good idea to not dump proficiencies. And then assets, assets are basically your um, special features. They're um, not quite feats. But um, they're a little bit more like um, 
I don't remember what they're called in Savage Worlds, but the the bonuses and restrictions that you can take at character creation for extra points. Um, so then we have a skills overview, and there are a whole bunch of skills, and it says what um, the associated attribute is because you're not allowed to raise it higher than the associated attribute, I'm pretty sure. Um, I don't remember if you can't raise it higher or you can't raise it twice as high. Um, but anyway, there are a number of different skills that are useful and based on your pick, you will have a certain number of skill points to spend on skills. Um, some of them are likely to be more useful than others. Um, there's some points similar to Barbarians of Lemuria. There's a soldiering skill that does not actually refer to how good you are at fighting with weapons, but rather your ability to, you know, hold ranks and fight in the shield wall type thing. Um, and then there is a section on basically what other skills you might create um, for a situation. So there's the charioteering skill and the streetwise skill, which um, are both the ideas. These are not standard skills. These are rather custom skills for a campaign that requires charioteering or streetwise. But they're an example of how you build skills. And I like that there is a provided example for how to build more skills and what they should do. Then we have the assets list. The assets, um, many of them have a good version and a poor version, and you can take one or both. So, for instance, I'm looking at um, abrasive, and you gain the good version is you gain a minus two target number modifier on all checks involving intimidation. Poor is you take a plus two target number modifier on checks involving endearing oneself to others or negotiation. So, like I said, you could take just the good, just the poor, or both. Um, the both basically cancel each other out for cost at character creation. Um, just the good will cost some stuff. Just the poor will, if you dumped assets at character creation, you can take just the poor. Um, there's some that don't have two options. So for instance, under addiction, it says there are no good aspects to the addiction asset versus ambidextrous. There is no poor aspect to the ambidextrous asset. Um, but in general, there's a lot of these assets and a lot of them have bonuses and penalties and it gives a good way, I think, to, um, create an interesting role-playing flavor is one of the things you will do with upgrading your character in all likelihood is buying off poor assets or buying good assets. And so you could, for instance, start with a poor asset in something, buy the good asset in something, and then eventually buy off the poor asset to represent your character kind of learning to take advantage of this feature of themselves, which I think is interesting. Um, then we have proficiencies. Proficiencies are used to determine the melee pool. So if you remember reflex, reflex is your natural ability with melee weapons. Proficiencies describe proficiency plus reflex equals your total melee pool. 
and proficiencies describe which maneuvers you know. And there are a number of proficiencies. There's brawling, cut and thrust, dagger, great sword, lance, long sword, mass weapon and shield, polearm, spear and shield, sword and shield, and wrestling. And all of these proficiencies have rules for learning a different proficiency based on them. So, for instance, if you have a rank in brawling, you can gain um, a less you can gain one less rank in wrestling for free, essentially, um, which is useful if you want to have you know a variety of things that you're doing. Anyway, there's descriptions of each of these. Um, Proficiencies, you could also make more proficiencies pretty easily if you had a certain style of fighting that you wanted to represent, although these are pretty general and so they're fine. Now we have maneuvers. There are a bunch of maneuvers. There are offensive maneuvers and defensive maneuvers. You generally don't need um, that. Well, I say you don't need that many maneuvers. It's cool to have a whole bunch of maneuvers available, but you don't necessarily need that many maneuvers in a regular fight. In a regular fight, it's totally fine to just use cut and thrust and maybe um, one or two other things in there. Basically, cut and thrust as your offensive maneuvers, cut being slashing, thrust being stabbing, defensive maneuvers, Block, counter, disarm, parry. All of your standard things. Um, all of the maneuvers have activation costs. So the way it works is that from your melee pool, which you remember is based off of your reflex and your proficiency, you pay a certain activation cost to start the maneuver, and then you pay a certain number of dice into your active dice and basically that's the pool that you will roll for seeing successes you'll roll your pool the opponent will roll their pool and then based on the number of successes in each pool and what maneuvers were used you'll figure out the outcome of the action so for instance if you roll eight dice and they roll six dice you making a cut and they making a parry and you get more successes that means that you have successfully slashed them somewhere and presumably done damage. Although we haven't talked about armor yet. And armor in this system is really powerful as it was historically. Um, it's really good to be wearing armor. So we have all of the maneuvers described, offensive and defensive, and there's rules for what proficiency level you have to be to learn the specific maneuvers. Um, there's some maneuvers that are perhaps not as useful for a standard sword and sorcery setting, like half sorting. Half sorting is really for trying to punch through plate armor, and most sword and sorcery doesn't have a lot of plate armor. Um, but it's there. It's this is this Blade of the Iron Throne, I think of as in many ways as much of a refinement on the basic riddle of steel concept in addition to being its own kind of specific game so defensive stuff now we're on to character progression so passion attributes are how your character can progress 
by doing things that fulfill your passions, you gain points in the passions. You can spend those points either to add to your pools for rolls when you're rolling something that is relevant or to um, spend down the maximum size of the pool in order to get certain um, permanent bonuses and all that sort of stuff. There's some other stuff you can do. Um, there's the drama passion, which drama is basically a passion that every character has that um, has some rules about how you can do it. So you can um, spend a point of drama to change the combat's order of limelights. Limelights are how the system does initiative. Um, and there's... Uh... Anyway, you can use drama for special things. You can spend passion points um, to increase your basic attributes, your proficiencies, to buy new or buy off assets, to buy skills. Um, you also have a loot rating, which in standard sword and sorcery fashion is not a um, actual measure of money, but is a zero to five rating of how rich you are. And Basically, the idea is when you want to buy something, the referee looks at this and says, well, are you rich enough to buy it or not? That's going to bother some people. It doesn't really bother me, but also you could pretty easily use any number of tables of item prices um, in any number of other settings. I know Adventure Conquer King has a really good kind of set of prices for items and for goods and services and things like that um, that is consistent all the way through. And now we're at the end of chapter three, so I'm going to take a break here. So the next chapter, chapter four, is called Melee. And um, of course, since this is a system that prides itself on hyper-realistic melee combat, it uh, makes sense that this is going to be a complicated chapter. So, how does it work? Well, there are a number of locations to hit. They range from uh, 1 to 12. So, ranged is 2d6, 2 to 12. Thrusts are 8 to 14. Swings are 1 to 7. That just gives you an idea. There's a lot of different places that you can swing or thrust or shoot at an enemy. So the order of a combat round. Combat round is fought in, fought in the following sequence. All stances are declared. You can um, choose to be aggressive, neutral, or defensive. If you act within your role based on your stance, you get plus two melee to your melee pool. Um, the aggressor and defender is established initiative. Melee pool fills refreshes with all modifiers. So one of the things to keep in mind is that a round has two halves to it, and your pool only refreshes at the end of the second half. So if you go all out on the first strike and you do not kill the enemy with that first strike, they can probably strike back relatively unimpeded, which um, really is where a lot of the strategy to this game comes in. So um, 
uh, the first half is resolved if there may be a change in initiative, if one, um, basically whoever was successful in the first half of the combat round gets to take initiative if they want to. So for instance, if you swing your sword and they block with their shield successfully, then it is the enemy's turn to attack if they want to, they don't have to. Um, second, so two halves, the, the two exchanges as they are called, um, pull refills, we go again and again until there is an interruption in the flow of combat or until combat is resolved. And that's the, the limelight system, which is basically play out the combat until something big happens. Um, which, as I have never done it in play, I don't know how it would work. It seems to me like it would be easy for that to get wrapped up on one character and everybody else is sitting around waiting for their character to take a turn. Um, but I don't know, maybe it plays faster and smoother than I think with just one person, um, playing just by myself, it can play pretty quickly and pretty smoothly, but I have not tried it out with multiple people. So stances, initiative, there's rules for stealing initiative, which is basically uh, if you want to try to strike before the enemy, you can spend some of your um, melee pool to essentially speed up your attack to strike quickly, which is useful because if you strike quickly enough, you may do enough damage that you, when you do damage to the enemy, it often takes away from their melee pool and it may well take away enough to prevent them from actually accomplishing their strike. Um, there's rules for surprise, and then we are into the exchange. So all attacks are aimed at a specific location, numbered 1 to 14 on the target zone diagrams. That's that 1 to 7 zones for swings, and 8 to 14 areas for thrusts. And that covers basically the whole area of, um... The, the person that you are attacking. Then we have rules for um, activation costs, weapon reach. Weapon reach engages, has a really big factor. So essentially it is very hard to try to strike at somebody who has longer reach than you. But if you can successfully get a strike in, that represents you getting close enough to hit them with the close thing. And then it is very even harder for them to actually use their oversized weapon in the close quarters that you are at now. So there's an actual mechanical reason to carry a spear and a sword and a dagger. Um, anyway, so after we do the exchange, there's the possibility of damage. Like I said, damage is based on the um, brawn of the attacker. The brawn and tenacity of the defender has a chance to reduce the amount of damage. Um, every weapon has a damage rating depending on if it is um, cutting or thrusting. Armor factors into damage and net successes factors into damage. Um, 
Anyway, and then at the back, the appendix is a whole bunch of tables for how damage actually works, which is basically based on the um, locale that was attacked. You almost always roll a d6 to see where within that locale you actually hit, and then you look at the um, total amount of damage done based on the quality of success, based on your brawn, based on their damage reduction, their damage soak, based on their armor, all of that sort of stuff that gives you a level of damage between one and six. Generally, sixes are um, combat ending and one are just a scratch. And there are special wound tables for all of the different types of damage that you might do. Um, slashing wounds, piercing wounds, blunt wounds, um, generic damage, like getting hit with fire or something like that. Um, you have shock and pain based on the wound, which reduces the um, melee pool of the person who just got wounded. Anyway, um, which means that if you get hit and it is a hit that pierces the armor, it can be the beginning of the, the death spiral because you lose your control over the fight every time you get hit and you take shock and um, pain. Anyway, and there's some examples put into play about all that sort of stuff. There's also blood loss. Blood loss depends on the type of wound that you got, and blood loss will um, put more penalties to um, all of your different pools and your attempts at checks. Um, there's also knockdown and knockout, which is based on where you got hit. You might be knocked down. So, for instance, if a character gets wounded in the leg, they might be knocked down. If they get hit in the head, they might be knocked out. Or they might just be stunned for a second. But it all is factored in there. So, then we have a section on terrain checks, fatigue in the combat scene, um, fatigue is an optional rule used only in combat situations. No one enters a combat scene fatigued. If he might be considered fatigued from previous strenuous activity, the rush of adrenaline at the onset of a new combat can be considered to have temporarily drowned out any previous exhaustion. I don't know about that. It definitely feels very sword and sorcery, um, to always be at kind of full energy as the combat begins, but, um, I don't know. Uh, you could put your own fatigue rules in there. And that's that's kind of what I'm going to say about a number of these things, is that I think Blade, works, Blade of the Iron Throne, um, for what it is as basically a toolkit for running um, this particular kind of high-intensity, high-detail combat in a sword and sorcery setting, it works well for that. You may want to shift how it works for other things. And um, the other books that are similar to Blade of the Iron Throne have different rules for these sorts of things. So we have defense. There's evasion, which is dodging. There's all of the different things that you can do. There's different defense target numbers for shields based on the size of the shield, which basically represents when you roll your pool of dice 
what target number are you looking for to determine if a die is a success or a failure. Um, generally, the larger your shield, the easier it is to block. And then we have the armor overview. So there are lots of different types of armors. There, in fact, are rules for the armor being um, pretty much impenetrable to cleaving weapons. So, for instance, mail or plate armor, the rules for armor value versus cleaving is in A, you cannot get cut through mail armor. Um, you instead take blunt damage through mail armor, um, which represents the you know, the force that is transferred through the metal, even though that cutting edge doesn't actually get through, um, which makes armor real powerful. And in fact, armor can be real powerful in um, interesting ways because, for instance, because this models realistic weapon, realistic damage in terms of where you get hit, putting mail on just your torso actually makes some sense because... Quite honestly, you can live without a, an arm or a leg. You can't really live without a good chunk of your torso. So there's actually – it's one of the really interesting things I think about this system is the way that it incentivizes certain things. Um, on the other hand, there's no real incentive for um, – having like partial armor in the sense of likelihood of getting hit on the armor. But um, I have an idea for rules for that, which is basically um, left side, right side randomizers where you're more likely to hit the um, weapon arm and the forward leg and less likely to hit the rearward leg and the shield arm, which means that it makes sense to armor up your weapon arm and your forward leg. But that's just me. There's a special rule for barbarian armor, which is basically um, if you dress like Conan or like Red Sonya, you wear the, you know, fur tidy whities or chainmail bikini or whatever your particular barbarian armor is, you get a bonus, um, which, you know, once again, definitely fits sword and sorcery. Ranged combat, um, this is one of the places where the ranged combat stuff is interesting, but there aren't really rules for how many attacks you actually get. It's all very kind of whatever the narrative demands in the limelight. Um, so, I don't know. The, the ranged rules are not the core of this game in many ways. The, the melee rules are, but there are rules for ranged if you want to play a ranged character or if you want to do ranged things in the midst of melee. And one of the things they talk about is, for instance, thrown daggers are a really big thing in um, sword and sorcery fiction that, you know, Conan throws his daggers. There's rules for mounted combat. And that'll actually get into one of the things that I think is really cool, which is basically how do you fight a dinosaur in a realistic Dark Ages, Bronze Ages, Medieval, whatever you want to call it, pre-Renaissance setting, how would you fight a dinosaur? Think about that for a little while, and we'll get back to it later on in the podcast. So rules for writing, rules for jousting, rules for mounted archery, 
rules for fighting animals. There are special rules for large animals that basically, and huge animals that basically reduce the wound levels that they take um, on successful hits to represent the idea that they're just tougher and hardier and all that sort of stuff. And then there are um, these two diagrams that show where the attack zones and all of that fit on the animals. Um, it shows an example both on a horse that has a rider and on a wolf. There's some special maneuvers that animals can do, like raking or stampede or pouncing um, or constricting or um, worrying, you know, like um, wolves that bite down and shake their head and all that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, and then there is a nice long example of melee combat, which is definitely necessary because melee combat is really complicated in this system. But this example of melee combat, it's like five pages long. Yeah. And it, it, I think shows off actually what can happen in this system, which is you can get really awesome, intense, combat that feels really special and unique um it doesn't feel like rolling a d20 to hit and then i'm just going to describe it however it feels like there's a real skill to fighting and it has a really high ceiling and it's really it, it's really unique um chapter five travel and health there's rules for um, character encumbrance, mount encumbrance, encumbrance terrain modifiers. Encumbrance is all optional rules, but um, I don't know. You'd probably play with it. Rules for healing and wounds. Rules for... So that um, is realistic healing levels, which means if you take a big sword swing, you're going to be out for a while. Um, falling damage, generic damage, poison pain, um, and um, ways to reduce pain. And then we get into sorcery. Um, one of the criticisms of the original Riddle of Steel game was that sorcery was super unbalanced. Um, in the original Riddle of Steel game, one of the ideas was that it was meant more as a kind of realistic version of what all of this shit would be like in late medieval, early Renaissance pseudo-Europe. So sorcery was really powerful. Um, sorcery was a lot more powerful than the things you could do with a sword, based on the idea, as far as I can tell, that, you know, if you have somebody who can blast fireballs, they're realistically more powerful than somebody with a sword, even somebody who is very, very good with a sword. Which is not to say that the guy with a sword can't get into a position where he has the advantage over the guy who can shoot fireballs. But anyway, sorcery in this system, it works kind of similar to the other systems where you have a pool of sorcery dice. Um, you roll both for power and for control. Um, there are a list of mysteries, which are basically the different things that you can do with sorcery. And so there's um, things like 
placing a doom on someone, or enslaving them, or healing, or witchfire. And then there's greater mysteries, like necromancy. Um, necromancy in this system is pretty wild. And then we have arcane secrets, which are um, super special things that you can learn. And there's suggestions for how to make your own arcane secrets and um, different sorceress traditions, essentially. Um, there's also rules for a duel between spellcasters, a duel of wills where they both try to blast each other um, and all of that sort of stuff. And there's special maneuvers for sorcerers duels so that they can do their sorcery things. Then we're on a section called Sword and Sorcery Gaming. And so we have an overview of Sword and Sorcery, and it's a discussion of what the genre is like, what faith in the divine is like, what magic and supernatural things, what um, racial things go on, what is on, going on with heroes and villains of Sword and Sorcery, what um, Sword and Sorcery tales are good examples to use and... Um, a list of bullet points of things to think about. We have 20 tips for running your Blade of the Iron Throne game. Um, and there's some, yeah, good tips. There, it's, um, as far as I can tell, having never run Blade of the Iron Throne, I would want to go back through this session, section again before running Blade of the Iron Throne because these all seem like good tips. Um, and then we have a section on Zoth. If I haven't done my overview of the player's guide to Zoth, but it is very much um, much of the same information. Zoth is a sword and sorcery setting based on the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa. Um, it's also, I'm pretty sure, fully Bronze Age or maybe like early Iron Age, um, or maybe it's late Iron Age. I don't remember exactly. I remember something about there being a fair bit of bronze in some sections. Um, there's a map of Zoth, and then there's all of this stuff about the different peoples of Zoth. Um, you can get all of this information in the Zoth um, player's guide, but it's cool that it's here. If you want a sword and sorcery setting that is included in the book, there is one included in the book. Um, I don't know if how much extra information there is in here versus in the player's guide to Zoth. Um, but I don't know. I'm not going to bother reading through both of them just to figure out if there's a little bit more information in one or the other. It seems like they're pretty similar. Okay, and here we are at the appendices. Damage tables, a whole bunch of damage tables for cleaving, piercing, blunt, swung piercing, and then we have weapon tables for melee and ranged weapons. They have swing attack numbers, swing damage rating, thrust attack number, thrust attack target number, thrust damage rating, defense target number, and blunt damage rating for a lot of these weapons. Um, and there are a whole bunch of different weapons. So you can pick your favorite brand of sword all the way from a side sword to an arming sword to a katana to a zephos or a kopesh 
or a stiletto or a guitar or a three different types of maces and a ball and chain, um, a bunch of different types of axes, rules for um, different spears, rules for lances, rules for the weapons that animals might use, um, their natural weapons, a bunch of missile weapons. There's a discussion of how weapon quality works, and basically it says weapon quality isn't that big of a thing normally in sword and sorcery. Um, Conan doesn't have a named sword or anything like that. He just has a sword that is presumed to be a pretty good sword for the setting. There's also rules for enchanted weapons, and one of the interesting things here is the idea that enchanted weapons do not work just like regular enchanted weapons in your regular setting where it's a plus one to hit or something like that. The idea is that enchanted weapons are essentially another passion trait. And so you can, when you are doing something that fulfills the weapon's desires, you can call upon the power of the weapon to add dice to your roll. Very much like, um, very much more like Elric, 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 drawing on the power of um, Stormbreaker, Stormweaver. I, what's the name of his fucking sword? Stormbringer. Yes, Stormbringer. Um, not like your standard D&D thing where you just get better and better weapons. Then we have a whole long bestiary of NPCs three different ranks of soldiers, townsmen, nomads, barbarians, bandits, pirates, whores and pimps, and courtesans. I don't know. Oh, the courtesan is a high-class courtesan. Um, bouncers, slavers, gladiators, street urchins, bodyguards, sorcerer. So the sorcerer section is interesting because let me read out the paragraph. This sinister sorcerer is not a dirty and weak old man, but barely approaching his middle age in good shape and not shrinking back from leading and enjoying a physical life. He's already deeply steeped in gruesome arcane secrets and is still delving deeper greedily, standing at the very threshold of the greatest sorcerer's mysteries. And he will stop at nothing to cross this threshold, nothing at all. So this is a sorcerer to fear. This is, um, you know, this is Thulsa Doom. He's a serious sorcerer. We have a section on beasts, including war horses and stuff like that. Um, three different types of canines, three different types of felines, three different types of bears, two different types of crocodiles, a couple types of snakes, a couple types of spiders, a great ape, a carnivorous ape similar to a gorilla, but at least a quarter again as tall. Um, another sword and sorcery favorite. And then we have a dinosaur. In remote places of quite a few worlds of sword and sorcery, remnants of an earlier age can still be encountered. This one here looks like a tyrannosaur, but only about two-thirds its size, so more like an allosaurus. It is still massive enough to engage two PCs during their respective limelights, as per the rule on huge creatures, using his bite on one and his kick and maybe tail on another. Tail and claws can only be defended against by evasion, but both evasion and block are possible against the bite. Parry is not a viable defense against any of the dinosaur's attacks. Its tough hide protects it with the equivalent of hardened leather armor. So, 
Remember when I said, think about how you're going to take down a dinosaur? Well, there's a dinosaur in this book, and I hope you thought about it because we're going to have a discussion of how you would take down this dinosaur. Um, So stay tuned for that because I'm going to pause the recording here and get something to drink and come back and talk about taking down this dinosaur and about the Riddle of Steel and Song of Swords and how they compare to Blade of the Iron Throne. So... How do you kill a dinosaur in a realistic combat setting? Because you can't do D&D style tank and spank the way you would do with a dragon where you have the fighter just sit and take damage from claw, claw, bite, and the wizard at the back just, you know, popping off fireballs one after another, all of that sort of stuff. You could hypothetically use some fireballs with sorcery, but um, yeah, what do you do to kill a dinosaur. And I have basically two answers that I came up with. Um, the first one is use your noggin and role play. And um, this is basically just come up with a real plan that doesn't involve trying to hack and slash at the dinosaur with your sword. For example, ancient humans used to chase mammoths and presumably mastodons and woolly rhinos and all sorts of things with fire. They would use torches and fires and things to chase these massive animals off of cliffs. So the the animal would fall off of the cliff and be um, either fully dead or not quite dead, but pretty close. Um, And it would be a big haul of meat for an early human. Seems like you could do something like that to try to take down a dinosaur. Like, say, start a forest fire and try to get it to go over the cliff. Um, That might not be the best solution, but uh, that's sort of – that's one of them that I came up with. One example of how do you kill a dinosaur in a setting like this, and the answer is, well, you don't fight it sword and board the way you would normally fight a dragon in D&D. You come up with some sort of plan because surely there's something you can do. The other way you fight it, and I calculated this out, is you do the classic knight in shining armor on horseback. You have a war horse and a lance, and you charge it. And this is because of the way that damage stacks with the lance. You get to use the full amount of the horse's bronze stat on damage, which if you have a couched lance charge, which is potentially a lot of damage that you are adding to your attack, and you could hypothetically kill this massive creature, this allosaurus-sized dinosaur in one single or one big and then a couple of smaller lance hit straight to the body. You could kill this thing like that. And believe me, I worked out the math for this is how if you were trying to go toe-to-toe with a dinosaur, you would kill it. And I think that that is so cool. Because what we have is a system that is deeply concerned with realistic combat modeling, but that also ultimately allows for something that is 
super classically heroic. I mean, you're talking about a knight in shining armor on horseback charging at a dinosaur, basically a dragon with a lance trying to kill it in one wicked strike. That's so cool. How cool is that? That is that is fucking awesome. Man, that's that's just the best. You couldn't do that in D&D, you know? You the dinosaur or the dragon has too many hit points. It doesn't work like that. You can't get one lucky strike unless you get like a perfect critical um, and do max damage. And even then, that's probably not enough unless you're playing like Dungeon World where the dragon has, you know, 16 hit points. Um, but in this system, you can because everything is realistically vulnerable. Everything, it, it, it's a realistic damage system and you know realistically a charging horse could put a lot of force behind one well-placed lance one well-placed lance strike you could put a lot of force behind it and drive it deep into the vital organs of a great big dinosaur and i just think that is so cool i I think that's awesome when i first calculated it out i was like holy shit is this for real and then I calculated it again and went, yes, this is actually for real. This is if you wanted to take down a, an allosaurus dinosaur, you could do it with one lucky lance charge. And to be clear, you'd have to get lucky or you'd have to be really good at fighting with a lance. More likely, you'd have to get lucky um, because... Unless you are actually a knight, you probably wouldn't have a whole lot of proficiency in lances. And so more than likely what it would be is that you would be um, doing your best to get a sort of big wounding strike on this creature to drive it off than that one perfect kill strike. But if you had a character with a lot of proficiency in lances, you could definitely get that perfect kill strike and kill a dinosaur in one hit. And that's just amazing. That's so cool. Anyway, back to what's in the book. So we have vampires. Vampires are terrifying in this system. Um, they have a lot of different spells in addition to being deadly melee combatants. Um... They can also only be destroyed with um, a couple of special strikes destroyed by burning or a clean decapitation. Um, luckily, there's rules for clean decapitations. You can make a sword strike to the, the slashing zone of shoulders and neck and hope that you get that perfect strike to get a clean decapitation, although it's going to be hard to do if the vampire is wearing, say, a chainmail coif. And the um, book makes a point. Vampires don't burn any better than a regular human, and that is they practically don't burn at all. Um, we have a demon, a were tiger with a hybrid form, an animal form, and a human form, a walking dead sample animated corpse and sample animated skeleton, serpent folk, humanoid people evolved from snakes, 
another staple of sword and sorcery. And then we have a nice long bibliography with a whole bunch of different authors. There are a lot of, there's some um, classical literature on here, the Iliad and the Odyssey and Beowulf and the Nibelungen Lied and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Then we have really getting into true sword and sorcery. Um, a whole bunch of different authors, um, even relatively minor ones who don't get mentioned nearly as much. Um, and in particular, there's a sort of section for um, authors who came the sort of second and third generation of sword and sorcery writers, including people like Carl Edward Wagner and his Kane series, or Charles Saunders, whose Amaro series is great. You should read Amaro because Amaro is super fun. Um, it's black African sword and sorcery, um, and it's great fun. I might read Amaro again now that I'm talking about it because it's a lot of fun. Um, anyway, that is Blade of the Iron Throne. Blade of the Iron Throne is really cool. What I'm going to do now is go pull my copy of The Riddle of Steel out of the pile that it's sitting in and find what I think is the afterword. And then I think I'm going to read pretty much the whole of the afterword to you because it really shows off um, what I want from these types of systems and why I am really interested in playing them. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so I've gotten my copy of The Riddle of Steel. Um, I hope you know what a service it is that I'm going to read this to you because it is black text on a background with gray art and very hard to read. Um, I'm not going to read the whole of the afterword, but I'm going to read a section of it. A lot of folks have asked where this sudden and seemingly fanatical interest and devotion concerning The Riddle of Steel came from. Excuse me. I don't really know myself, but I have a few ideas. It really goes back to why the game was created in the first place, to fill a gap. Fantasy RPGs constitute the oldest genre for our hobby, and more games than most of us will ever be aware of have attempted to provide some kind of ultimate FRPG experience. Unfortunately, many of us became disillusioned. Fantasy games weren't believable anymore. They didn't let us tell the stories we wanted. Then there was the whole mechanics issue. I recall a session many years ago where I was playing a fighter. Our party had gotten involved in a fairly dramatic battle on the edge of a mountainous cliff. We had been hacking away at critters of some sort for quite some time when I got bored and asked the GM how high up we were. About a hundred feet to the chasm floor, he said, trying to scare me. I did some quick math and realized that I could take the fall head first and still only lose 30 to 40 hit points playing the averages. Bad, I know. I had 60-something, so I leapt. After hitting the bottom and standing up only 34 hit points less, I ran off. Orcs up above shot at me a few times, but even with seven arrows in my body, I managed to run away. And so my disbelief was complete. I couldn't happily play that game anymore. It wasn't intense anymore. It had become a cartoon or a video game. I later got heavily involved in the martial arts of medieval and renaissance Europe, the German longsword, the English quarterstaff, the Italian cut and thrust. The combat of our ancestors, I learned, was elegant, demanding, and intelligent. It required strategy and skill. I wanted, perhaps I needed, to play such a game. 
The Riddle of Steel began as a project to fill in the gaps left to us by other FRPGs. No, it's not the be-all, end-all, super FRPG of all time, but it does give us some things we never really had in those old games we grew up with. Strategy and lethality in combat based on real historical models. Motivation-driven play and character progression. Flexible and horribly unbalanced magic. Not sure that one is a positive, but it fits the ethos. Ron Edwards, the author of Sorcerer, once said that fantasy and fantasy role-playing games have become too nice. Sorry if that's not an exact quote, Ron. I agree wholeheartedly. The intensity is gone, and many RPGs have become reduced to a pen-and-paper recreation of a PC CD-ROM. We're here to bring it back. We have come to claim our place among thousands of disgruntled gamers to say we want real fantasy. We want blood. We want stories and passions and reasons to live. Whether you've come to the Riddle of Steel looking for something different, blisteringly cool combat, wicked sorcery, dramatic storytelling, or for anything else, we hope you've found it. We hope others will find it with you. Jacob Norwood, creator, Riddle of Steel. So I left out a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end. But I think that gives you a good idea of what is in the afterword and where the game kind of situates itself. This is absolutely not a game for everyone. The The Riddle of Steel and Blade of the Iron Throne and Song of Swords, I think, are not games for everybody. In some ways, they're hardly games for anybody. But they do something really interesting. And I think that something is that they do a unique take, not just on combat, but also on the general role of character. There's something sort of like the way that passions work in the Chaosium games to the way that these attributes, these special attributes, these um, drama and passions and all of that in Blade of the Iron Throne, in Riddle of Steel work. In Song of Swords, it's a little different. It's more tied directly to advancement and not as associated with getting extra dice to use in combat. But still, what we have is, at the core, a system that is about character um, in a lot of ways. It's about character, and it's about really deadly, realistic combat. And I think that's so cool. I haven't gotten a chance to play it yet. I really, really want to. If you want to play this game, please let me know, and I will, I will figure out how to play it with you. If this doesn't sound like the game for you, I totally understand. This is not the game for everybody. And like I said, it's practically not the game for anybody. But I really want to play. I felt like I needed to do this episode of the podcast because I am just obsessing over this branch on the family tree of RPGs. So I have been Arlen Walker, and I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time. And I will be back soon.